Tonight, is it teaching or cheating? The artificial intelligence program ChatGPT is doing things we never imagined, from writing poetry and essays to passing exams. But should it be allowed in class? New York City right now says no, but meet the Ivy League educator requiring his students to use the software. Then, how extremist groups are turning to social media to brainwash our children. Metrofocus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Sylvia A. and Simon B. Poita Programming Endowment to Fight Anti-Semitism, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold, Dr. Robert C. and Tina Schoen Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, and the estate of Roland Carlin. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jack Ford. A new artificial intelligence program, ChatGPT, is sweeping the internet. The free software is capable of doing almost everything from writing essays, film scripts, and poetry to passing graduate level law and business school exams. This revolutionary software, while no doubt exciting, is also concerning for some educators who feel that students could use it to easily cheat on school assignments. New York City is one of several large school districts that has already banned students from using ChatGPT as officials review the potential pros and cons of giving students access to such a powerful resource. While ChatGPT certainly has its critics, there are other educators who feel that the software can be an incredibly useful tool for our students, so long as we teach them how to use it the right way. Joining us tonight with more on ChatGPT and why he's not only encouraging his students, but also requiring it in some fashion, is Dr. Ethan Mollick. Dr. Mollick is an associate professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. And professor Mollick, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So this is such a fascinating topic here. Um, I know I mentioned you're an associate professor. I'm a visiting lecturer at Yale, have been for 15 years, and I'm waiting to see what my final papers are going to look like here. So this is an especially relevant conversation for me to have with you and for all of our viewers to, to watch here. Let, let's start at the beginning, a good place to start, which is give us just a brief overview of what this is when we're talking about chat gpt and it's what its abilities are sure so it's often called ai but ai is kind of an imprecise term that means a lot of things chat gpt is what's specifically called a large language model so it's basically uh think of it as like the an autocomplete meets a robot so it basically can create text for you based on whatever you ask it based on having learned almost everything on the internet through October, 2021. It, it's, a, it's a concept that's almost hard to get your, not just your arms around, but your brain around. How new is this? So these large language models have been around for a, a few years. There was a model called GPT-3 that has been around for about a year and a half and caused a little bit of a stir when it came out, people got a little bit anxious about it and it sort of produced sort of C minus essays. Right. And then that was updated at the end of November 
along with chat GPT and GPT 3.5, same kind of thing. And suddenly, even though the technology is the same, the size of the model, something kind of magical happened and the capabilities went up from mediocre to absolutely stunning. I'm going to talk in a few minutes about the objections. And I mentioned some in the introduction here. Um, there was an initial reaction amongst many educators saying, oh, th this can't be good for our students and original thinking. But let's focus on, on your view of this and why you have concluded this can be, can be a valuable tool. Why do you think that is so? So what's fascinating about using this, and I would actually, the thing I'd recommend, there's a free version available and everybody should try this out and not just for a few minutes, like take, you gotta spend like an hour to kind of get it, right? And a bunch of, bunch of guides and stuff on how to do it. But I think what you'll find is, is that for writing, it suddenly does all sorts of amazing things. So just to give you a couple examples, a lot of people aren't great at generating ideas. GPT-3 and ChatGPT will be happy to give you 50 ideas for a good project to do. Not all of them will be good, but some will be great. It can take and synthesize pieces of information. You can put an academic paper in and ask it to summarize it. You can put your writing in and ask it to improve your writing or make it punchier, and we'll do all of those things. So we have a general purpose tool for processing information. It feels like that's something we should incorporate, especially in the classes like a business school class, rather than something that we need to fight. Explain to us a little bit of some of your courses, some of the, the, the subject matter that you teach and how you feel you can incorporate that in a, in a safe academic fashion. Sounds great. I mean, I, I let me even tell you how I couldn't stop it, right? So I learned, I, I started using ChatGPT from the very beginning because I've already been playing with these AI systems. So it came out on a Thursday. That Tuesday, I taught my undergraduate entrepreneurship class at Warden and I introduced the class to it. I sort of said, let's stop and let's talk about this. By the end of the first class, one of my students had already created a complete working demo for their entrepreneurial idea with working code um, in using a coding library they never used before. I posted on Twitter, they had three venture capital offers that night. Wow. By the Thursday, 60% of the class had used chat to do something, explain a concept to them they didn't understand, tell them what was wrong with the test result. So it's being used everywhere. Cheating is certainly one possibility, but it's not the only one. So in my classes, I require it all over. I expect my students to use it to help them generate ideas, to help them write essays. I've now increased the amount of things they have to write and the diversity of things they have to write, all because this tool makes it easy to do so. We see oftentimes folks suggesting a comparison, saying, look, don't, don't be alarmed. This is progress. Go back to the days when I was in high school and even college, although I, I was a history major, I didn't take a, a, a whole lot of, of math courses, but you know, there was a time when you could not use calculators. Yes. And, and then, and this was kind of an earth shattering moment for some traditionalists when all of a sudden the folks said, well, wait a minute, why can't you use calculators in your class to help you? Is that a, a viable parallel, do you think, for what we're seeing here? So I think in the short term, very much so. In the short term, this is like a calculator. If you're taking a writing class where composition is going to matter, you just like with a calculator-based class, you'll need to use a blue book and handwrite things or do oral exams. For classes where you're supposed to use advanced math, or advanced writing, we can now do more of that and better of that because we have a calculator, right? So in the short term, I think that's very true. In the long term, the real questions are, okay, so this is great for the, you know, an issue for the classroom, what does this mean for the real world? And that that's a bigger issue. So I'm, I've seen uh, some observations made, and certainly this is amongst even supporters of this idea. And I think I even might've seen it on, on the, the website uh, for OpenAI who, who developed this. And they say there's a little bit of a caution here as to how this comes out. And one of the suggestions I saw was, you know, the, the 
the ability of the human mind to craft words and thoughts and ideas. And perhaps this isn't at that level. What do you think about that? So not to get too ahead of the game, but uh, mm -hmm. just yesterday I was given access to the newest AI, which is Bing's AI, which is basically open AI, the chat GPT, mm -hmm. on some sort of steroids attached to the internet. And I was able to ask it, you know, write a description of somebody eating cake. And then I said, okay, go look up Kurt Vonnegut's rules for good writing and apply that good writing style to the essay on cake. I completely rewrote it. And then it justified how it made all the changes that it made it a murder mystery story instead, where it yeah. said, you told me, you know, it needs antagonists and there needs to be, you know, drama and sarcasm. I, I was blown away, right? Is it as good as the best human writers? No. Is it is the difference between four months ago where it couldn't write at all to mm -hmm. two months ago where it was writing at a solid B minus level for master's level classes to this? We have a progression that is a pretty fast one. So I'm all for human ingenuity playing a role. I think it does. But I think we should be very cautious about feeling comfortable that what the systems do today is what they'll keep doing. Yeah. Talk about let's talk about some of the objections. Right. Um, what are you hearing from your colleagues that that that, that may well resonate? with you and with uh, certainly with them as to why they are to some degree or other uncomfortable with the utilization of this program. All right. So I think it breaks down to a few things. One is the capabilities of the system itself. So ChatGPT and all large language models at this stage lie. They lie a lot. They lie shamelessly and absolutely convincingly. So, what are, they, so what, are they politicians? Is that what they've created themselves at? Uh, it's, Sorry, well, that it's, was well, an editorial comment. I couldn't help myself. Sorry. Uh, you're not the first person to point that out, but uh, they don't do it. With, they don't do it with intent, right? What they do is hallucinate, right? It, they don't know what's true or what isn't. It's generating information that's plausible, and once it runs out of rail, it just starts making stuff up. So it, it's so plausible that I use a different AI system that simulated that trained on my Twitter feed to generate, you know, and I asked the questions that I, you know, in, to answer on, on my behalf. And it started citing papers that seemed so plausible that I thought I had, might have written them and not remembered from 10 years ago. <laughs> that they were completely fake, right? So it right. makes up information. Um, so that's the first problem. Right. And that's troubling. That is troubling. So what I do in my classes, I say it makes up information. If you're not an expert in the topic, you need to be very careful about the topic. And I'm going to grade you based on the accuracy of your results. So you have to be aware that it hallucinates and you have to use that to your advantage yeah. or, you know, avoid it, use it to disadvantage rather. Right. If you were, I'll, I'll give you an illustration. So for me, right, you're telling you your business courses and you have various models you're working with. I, I teach an undergraduate, sem undergraduate seminar at Yale on famous trials. And as our final project, each of my 18 students need to find a, a trial that's out there, not, not the, of the 12 we've talked about, or, or, but others. And then they have to write about it. They have to write why it was significant, the legal implications, the political implications, social implications, historical consequences, essentially why it, it should be viewed as a value, certainly to them and, and, and maybe to others. Is that something that you think this would lend itself to, or is that something that I should be fearful of? Uh, so I would say a week ago, 
that you this would be something you should embrace because it wouldn't be able to do that sophisticated analysis. It would produce something that sounded like sophisticated analysis, but you as an experienced professor would know it wasn't. And it could be a great writing aid. Right? I mean, remember some of our students are English as a second language, third language, fourth language. They never learned to write or, you know, brilliant mm -hmm. students, lots to learn, but we tend to say writing is intelligence. It isn't always. So I would have said, it's great. It'll be a tool to help them become better writers. You know, you would get, have to be a little nervous because they'll produce a lot more content than they did without being as thoughtful about it. And you won't be able to judge quality based on writing, but mm -hmm. there's something interesting there. I will tell you that Bing AI is capable of doing analysis where you say, find a case, right? Here's the assignment, write me 2000 words about it. And it does something credible with that. So uh, the world is changing pretty quickly. So I, when I could say my advice last week would be different than this week, I yeah. think we need to stay tuned. That's a pretty good indicator how quickly the world is changing. It brings me to my last question to you. It's been a fascinating conversation. We could talk for hours, but got about a minute and a half, a little bit less than that. It, 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 the world is changing so rapidly. Five years from now, in, in your classroom, in my classroom, in, in, in elementary school classrooms, what is this going to look like? I don't know. I mean, I think anyone tells you they know. The technology, the technology is increasing about an order of magnitude a year. Right. We went, I, I was able to, by the way, successfully create a complete deep fake lecture of myself where I didn't do anything. The AI created the speech. I said, write a speech like Ethan Mollick, and it did. Uh, that was actually pretty good and accurate. And then I fed into another system that synthesized my voice from a minute of speech and created the speech. And then another system that generated animated images of me talking from a single photograph. And I created a complete animated lecture with no work. What is, I mean, that's now, right? So what does that mean for the future? It's really hard to know. Um, you know, usually we say technology doesn't change stuff that much, right? I don't know. The pace of change is really fast here. And I don't think anyone can give you a completely accurate prediction because nobody saw this coming in the first place. So I think things will mostly, you know, okay on rails be the same, but there's a lot of interesting stuff happening at a pace right. I've never seen before in all my career in technology and education and entrepreneurship well, and everything else. As, as you said earlier, stay tuned. Uh, professor Malik, uh, th this has been wonderful. I can see why you're a fab fabulous professor. I'd like to take some of your courses there. You've explained this wonderfully to all of us. Thank you so much for taking the time. And I will certainly look forward to talking with you down the road and get some updates on all of this. You be well now. Thank you, you too. As the country continues to grapple with a rise in right-wing extremism, many are left to wonder, why are so many young men becoming seduced by so much hatred? As part of our Exploring Hate initiative, examining the roots and rise of anti-Semitism, racism, and other extremism in America, our next guest has a theory she's been sounding the alarm on for the past several years. Writer and editor Joanna Schroeder is a media critic looking specifically through the lens of parenting and gender. In 2019, she wrote a New York Times op-ed titled, Racists Are Recruiting, Watch Your White Sons. And in it, she lays out how a combination of cultural changes, social media, and the awkwardness of adolescence has created fertile ground for either extremists or parents to seed. And she joins me now. Joanna, welcome to Metro Focus. Thank you so much for having me. So first, I just want to get into the subject, because as I mentioned in the intro, uh, a little bit about the ingredients for extremism and the role that social media and more importantly, the algorithms of a lot of these platforms play. But how did you come to understand this? It, it came to me very personally because it came through my own kids' Instagram pages when they were young. 
And what ended up happening is they, uh, they, I always monitored their for you pages and whatever they were looking at. In fact, I even had a, I even had a mirror for my younger kids on my phone where I could see what they were doing. I originally started monitoring them to prevent things like bullying and any kind of predatory behavior. But what I saw that concerned me the most was that their for you pages and their explore pages were just full of very subtle, but very troubling, um, hate-filled content, subtly mm-hmm. anti-Semitic, subtly racist, subtly anti-woman, anti-queer, anti-trans, everything. And it was mixed in with memes that were very appealing to young men, video games or irreverent jokes or goofy looking cartoons. And I realized this is a serious problem. Of course. And so I think a lot of parents of perhaps teens and tweens uh, might have come of age before social media. And so a lot of the traditional warning signs that they might be looking for, they don't manifest in the same way. Can you sort of expand on that? You know, I'm Generation X. And when I was young, you could tell skinheads from from everybody else. They stood out and and or they people would wear swastikas or other symbols. Now, these sort of anti-democracy and, and hate-filled groups, they, they look like everybody else and they're recruiting people that look like everybody else. And that allows them to be more effective and more appealing because this generation, they don't start out wanting to be dangerous racists or anti-Semitic. They don't start out wanting to be Holocaust deniers. They are lured into it and romanced into it. And if they were they were approached by someone really extreme looking, they'd probably be less likely to be to be lured in. Well, I was wondering if you could get a little bit more into uh, the explore pages, the discovery pages, the for you pages, because again, I think perhaps, and I'm not a parent myself, but perhaps a lot of parents sort of, you know, my kids are friends with their other friends on social media and their friends are fine. So it should be fine. But how does uh, the algorithms, how could it uh, suck you into something that's more violent and more dangerous? Yeah, that's the tricky thing. We think when we set up a private account for our kids and we check who they're following and we know they're following kids from school and their cousins and their aunts and uncles that they're safe. The reality is their explore pages or for you pages, basically what we would call their timeline is filled with stuff that's not just from their friends. It's from everywhere outside of the internet, outside of their little private page. So what happens is, and I, and I figured this out kind of because I was doing media buying or ad buying for my, the company that I work for. And I learned a lot about how people target ads and posts to different demographics. And I realized that, that these kids that are on private accounts are seeing things that are targeted toward kids that watch Minecraft videos. And Minecraft is a wonderful game. It's totally innocuous. It's safe for kids generally. And so parents have no idea that there's these these bad guys out there that are using their kids' interest in video games to show up in their timelines on a private account where they're not even following these people. And of course, with the way that uh, a lot of the algorithms work, because they want you to stay on, uh, if you engage with something, even if it's innocently, you see more of it. Is that correct? 
Absolutely. And the way I found this with my own son was he was, they, they scroll really fast through their timelines. It is like scroll, click, scroll, click, scroll. And they like everything, everything that they see, especially the younger kids. And I saw him have this image come up, this historical picture of Hitler. He hearted it. He moved on. I said, wait. And I slowed down. And when I looked at it, there was a subtle message that was profoundly pro Hitler and, and Holocaust denying. And this child had no idea. He had no idea. And I think that was when the light bulb went into my head that parents were totally unprepared for their kids being exposed to this, especially these kids that have no interest in history, no interest in politics. They're just playing video games. Somehow this kid's interest in um, deep fried memes, they called it at the time, sort of irreverent, goofy content and video games that someone knew to send these kids this content. And it does, it keeps them engaged. It shows them more, but they're clever and they mix it in with stuff that's not overtly anti-Semitic and not overtly Holocaust denying. YouTube can be even worse because they auto play video after video after video. And our kids sit down and they watch it an awesome YouTube blogger, vlogger playing video games that maybe as a parent you've screened and you feel totally comfortable with and they're enjoying that. And another one plays by that person. The third video that might play, maybe when you've walked out of the room or started listening to your own podcast, might be somebody who wants to teach your kids things that have nothing to do with video games that indoctrinate them into values that don't jive with your family. For me, I, I, I realized that Jordan Peterson, who is a problematic, um, he's a psychologist in Canada, but his theories are, are very um, anti-feminist, anti-trans, uh, very subtly problematic in many ways when you're just beginning with them. He was auto-playing and I knew about him because of my work. And I, I, it was like a cartoon where I ran in the room and like screeched to a stop. And I was like, what is this? And how did it get here? And I don't know that parents realize they're starting so innocent and then they're getting exposed to this stuff that way, slowly. Well, speaking of starting so innocent, uh, I also mentioned um, as from your article, the awkwardness of adolescence. Now, I think that it's universally understood that that period in your life, um, puberty is unpleasant to put it mildly. Uh, what makes that a uniquely vulnerable time for boys turning into young men? You know, if you were raised a boy or raised a girl, you know that adolescence is hard. Uh, but for boys of this generation, they've been a little bit caught in a time when their underdeveloped brains cannot understand the gender politics at work. And they see something like the future is female on a t-shirt when they're nine or 10 years old. Those boys are now 14, 15 years old. And the way that they process that is I don't have a place in the future. The future is female and I'm male and I don't know where I belong as a consequence of that. On top of that, what they see happening in their own schools is that there's a lot of rah, rah, go girls, which is a great thing. And the future is female is a great message. But they, unless they're in sports or otherwise very mainstreamed, they're not getting that message. And so they think girls have it all going for them. And there's all this positivity for everybody but themselves. So they they feel 
disenfranchised. They feel marginalized, whether they are objectively or not, we can't say, but that, that pain point, that awkwardness, even the pimples, the changing hormones, the testosterone, all of a sudden feeling desire makes them feel like lost. Mm -hmm. And, And that's where these people who it's not extremist to say that they're recruiting these people recruiting into this ideology, they hit our boys, they target them. They say, you can't just say whatever you want anymore. And you're being policed and girls have everything. And white boys are, are being harmed by society, silencing them. And if you don't know your kids are being exposed to this, you don't know how to check that narrative and counter it in a way that's logical for these kids. So for parents then of these young men, is it just as simple as uh, telling them, don't do this, don't say this, or does the approach need to be a little bit more nuanced? They're getting a lot of feelings of being silenced and shamed. And yeah, as adults, we might be able to say, oh, you're not really being silenced, but they feel that way. And it's important to make sure that we're not adding to that feeling. So for instance, what you want to tell your kids is, There's a lot of stuff going on online that a lot of people fall for and people are trying to trick kids and adults. And it's not just you who may be tricked into it. And I want you to know, you'll probably see things that aren't, aren't honest, that aren't real. And I want you to know that that it's okay if you fall for it, but I'd rather have you come to me first so we can talk. If you don't understand what's happening in a meme, come to me, let's just talk about it. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to be mad. Let's just go over it because it's not your fault that there's these grownups out there that think they can trick you into thinking something that you don't believe, that they can trick you into believing something that you normally wouldn't believe. And I'm just here to help you with that. You did offer one great suggestion, and that was the difference between uh, helping kids understand the difference between bad words and harmful words. So with about a minute left, can you explain what that is and how you implement that with your kids? Yeah, from the time they're little, we tell them that's a naughty word, that's a dirty word, that's a bad word. And so as kids get older, you know, they hear a swear word, maybe the word that you say when you stub your toe and they, they, oh, that's a bad word. And there's a little zing as they get older to saying the word that they're not supposed to say. And yeah, and, and what ends up happening is they get to middle school, they want to push back at at the norms and the expectations for them. And then they know there's words they're not supposed to say, but they're actually hurtful words. So from the time when they're very young, you have to talk to them about like, this is a naughty word that some people find rude. This is a a hurtful word that actually can make people feel unsafe or like they're in danger or like you don't care about them. And that distinction will help your child grow their empathy and understand the difference between being silenced and being thoughtful, being asked to be thoughtful about what they say. Well, I think that's a great place to leave it for us. Uh, Joanna Schroeder, writer, editor, uh, media critic, looking through the lens of parenting and gender. Thank you so much for joining us and giving us some very insightful uh, ways to look at the changes that are happening in our country and culture. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thanks for tuning into Metro Focus. Take our award-winning program wherever you go with Metro Focus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get podcasts so you never miss an episode. 
or simply ask your smart speaker to play Metro Focus, the podcast. Also available at WLIW.org radio and on the NPR One app.